I speak to you in the name of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We're spending time with the teacher in Ecclesiastes, Coelet, as he seeks out wisdom to understand all that happens under heaven. We are a people who long for meaning, and we have heard the teacher's cry that everything is meaningless, a thing we have each felt at times, but we remember the good news that by the work of Christ, our life has meaning restored. We are people who control our time and our days. But last week, we lingered with the idea that there is a season for everything and the good news that God, who is in control of every season, has promised that the time of death, sorrow, and pain is passing away. We are also a people who love money. Let's not deny it. Wealth is one of the greatest idols of our society, and most of us have the jobs we have, the lifestyles we have, are studying the things that we're studying on some level in the pursuit of wealth. And even if we're not, we're often tempted by it, and we are confronted with the teacher's wisdom once more this week. Wealth will not satisfy the teacher first draws our attention to the oppression which the poor experience, to justice and rights denied. And this is an offensive notion, something which ought to upset any one of us. But before anyone can clutch their pearls too tightly, the teacher says, do not be surprised by such things. Do not be surprised by such things. We might be indignant at the idea, surely justice denied and rights trampled on should be a surprise to us who live in a free and democratic society. Perhaps the teacher's words were true, but are no longer. Yet we regularly pass by encampments in our parks and remember the housing crisis in our city and the lack of safe beds and shelters. We read the news and we hear about police violence disproportionately more against the poor and marginalized. Yes, in the United States, but also in Toronto. The nation denies the right to adequate resources to house oneself or enough money for food for the month to those with disabilities, but will support their application to end their lives, which have been marked by lack and want. Do not be surprised by such things, the teacher says, because we have seen it. Because it is familiar to us. Because if we said we were surprised by such things, we would be feigning ignorance of a system that many of us are complicit in. Yes, most of us are complicit in it. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. Those in places of privilege look out for each other, Colette observes. And the poor pay the price. It is in the best interests of those who do not experience injustice to preserve the status quo. What if something changes and I find myself in the place that I now see the poor in? And who of us wants to pay more taxes or live a less comfortable life or jeopardize that which we have worked so hard for? Truly, those with privilege and means of all sorts look out for each other, 
But in all that those who love money protect, they will find no satisfaction. Money does not satisfy the greedy. And wealth does not satisfy those with much. Because there is always more money to be earned. There is always more wealth to be amassed. There is no point of satisfaction. I remember a poll some years ago where the researchers asked people at different income levels how much money they would have to earn to have enough to be satisfied. And consistently at every income level, the answer was just a little more. Just a little more than what we have now. And it doesn't matter how much we make. The lover of money will not be satisfied with money. Worse than simply not being satisfied, those who love money seek after it. Those who own riches are in grievous peril. St. Gregory the Great summarizes it this way, For certainly he who goes about to increase wealth is negligent in avoiding sin. And we do well to remember the words of our Lord. Indeed, what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world but forfeit his own soul. In pursuit of gain, of profit, of wealth, we will never find our fill, but we will slip into sin. We will serve wealth and not God. We will neglect love of our neighbors or caring for the poor. We will injure our very souls, spending money on that which is not bread and laboring for that which does not satisfy When the poor labor, they sleep well, the teacher says. Even on an empty stomach, they sleep soundly, whether by physical exhaustion or just a clear conscience. But not so the rich. Not so those who are kept up at night fixating on how they can acquire more or fretting about how they can retain what they already have. Or maybe even just with indigestion because of how they have filled themselves gluttonously and neglected those near to them. I would remind us of the words of the psalmist. In vain you rise up early and stay up late eating the bread of anxious toil. For he grants sleep to those who he loves. In vain those who pursue wealth deprive themselves of rest. Do we think Toronto is the first place where people have worked 80 hours a week in pursuit of advancing their career or their goals or their wealth? The psalmist knew people like that. We know people like that. Perhaps we are people like that who are fixated on the things which will bring in more and more money which will earn us our first million, which doesn't seem like enough anymore in this city, which will allow us the next rung on the property ladder or the next promotion with the salary of our dreams until we achieve it and we need still more. But God gives sleep to his beloved. And God, if it is not already clear, God loves the poor. There is a grievous evil which the teacher has seen, wealth which is kept to its owner's hurt. It is a grievous evil that the rich should be harmed by their own riches, that in their love for money 
They should cause to fester within themselves a wound which will be their demise. The cure for this wound is simple, but it is painful. That the wealth must not be kept. Money is not for amassing. Wealth is not for hoarding. Jesus tells a parable of a man who tore down his storehouse to build a still bigger one and dies before he can enjoy the still more he has now retained. Elsewhere, Jesus reminds us that one's life does not consist of abundant possessions. And still elsewhere, that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. James, the brother of Jesus, spells out the cost of amassing wealth, the grievous evil which Coalette has named of riches kept to their owner's harm quite plainly. He says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver has corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. James doesn't mince words like I might mince words for us. This is wealth kept to its owner's harm. That the corrosion will testify against us. Rust is evidence of disuse, of poor stewardship, that it was not maintained, not looked after, not shared. Money which changes hands frequently has rust worn away, but money sitting in a hoard shows the evidence of its neglect. This is a grievous evil. Not only that the rich neglect the poor, the evil of that is plain even to the foolish. But Colette names the evil that the rich in so doing have harmed not only their neighbors, but also themselves. As James says, that they have fattened themselves as for slaughter. Wealth which is kept to its owner's harm is an evil thing. And it's not a sin to be rich. I should say that right now. It's not a sin to be rich. My wife sometimes tells me when I preach a sermon like this that I'm a communist. But let me be clear. It is not a sin to be rich. Rather, all that we have is entrusted to us by the Lord. And Paul commands those who are rich to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. The rich are given the opportunity uniquely to be an abundant blessing to those around them, to share freely and joyfully without any concern. But the temptation is to hoard up, to save and save and save, to earn more and more and more. And to what end? This is where Colette will pick up the theme of wealth for us. 
And let me read you the passage from chapter 11 again, because the NIV makes some decisions about the meaning of this text, which they bake into the translation. But hearing it closer to the literal Hebrew will help us a little bit. Cast your bread upon the water, for after many days you will get it back. Divide your means seven ways, or even eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. There's a common contemporary way of interpreting these strange verses. What does it mean by putting bread on water? We have to solve that somehow. And so we heard that read for us this morning. It's that of marine trade, shipping overseas as an investment strategy. And therefore it follows that dividing your means seven ways, even eight, is about diversifying your investments. This makes sense to us. Have a diverse portfolio. Take calculated risks. Profit will come in the long term. We've heard this before. Is this the wisdom of God? Is this the wisdom of God that matches so perfectly what any Bay Street banker would tell us? Is what makes somebody seeking after God's wisdom different from anybody else simply the fact that we actually listen to our financial advisors? By no means. Unfortunately, I think the true wisdom of the teacher is being obfuscated by a desire to have a straightforward text for us to read. Despite what some modern commentators may say, the church has consistently interpreted this passage not as a call to shrewd business practices. Shrewd business practices have already made the wealthy wealthy, and it is meaningless and a grievous evil that they accumulate more and more to their peril and to the disadvantage of the poor. Rather than about shrewd business practices, The church has interpreted this passage time and again to be about charity and generosity. In the 4th century, St. Gregory of Nazianzus said, This seems to have a bearing on our duty of casting bread upon the waters, not that it may be swept away or perish in the eyes of the just examiner, but that it may come to that place where all our goods will be stored up, and it will be there to meet us in due time even though we may think otherwise. Gregory is pointing us towards Jesus' words to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and rust do not destroy and thieves do not steal. Casting bread on the water never makes sense unless you're feeding ducks, I suppose. What good is soggy bread to anybody? So too, acts of goodness and generosity may not make sense to us. How will my small gift actually change anything for anybody? What if I give in support of this charity or help out this friend or care for that woman begging for food and discover later that that money was wasted? We tell ourselves, at least if I keep what I have, I know I will put it to good use. But this is not what the teacher has observed. This is an excuse that we use to cover over our greed. And in casting bread upon the water, the teacher assures us it will come back, though we may not yet imagine how. Our call in giving is to give generously, lavishly, not needing to know the end. 
We do not need to know the result of every dollar or every hour we share with somebody in need for it to be good and right for us to spend our time and our resources caring for another. I've sometimes shared with you all that my family growing up was very working class, I would say very much working poor. And my observation has been that those with little are the most generous. The poor share from their poverty. If they have something to give, they give it because they know that money is fleeting. And if they can help you today with what little they have, they'll do so. Because even if they don't help you, it will be gone tomorrow anyway. It may as well help you while they have it. Then perhaps another day, when they have need, somebody they know might have a little extra and share it with them as well. When money comes and money goes, charity and generosity are natural. But when money only comes, well then we're hesitant to see it go. Those who know poverty are rich in generosity. And so often those who have wealth are ardent in their protection of their more. Generosity comes only after tax-free savings accounts are maximized after RRSPs are strategically contributed to, after vacations are budgeted for, after the mortgage down payment is tended to. I say this as somebody who has a TFSA and a pension. We are stingy with our much. And when opportunities to be generous come along, while some among us give quickly and joyfully even in their want. Many more of us first feel that it threatens our more, and we hesitate if we give it all. A grievous evil, wealth hoarded to its owner's harm. The teacher knows all about these habits of our hearts. Coalette acknowledges it for us. Whoever observes the wind will not sow, or regards the clouds will not reap. If you're always afraid the wind is going to blow away your seed, then you're never going to sow it. If you're always afraid that it's just about to rain, then you're never going to start the harvest. And there's never a good time to be certain of our financial security. There's never a good time to stop saving. There's never a good time to be generous. Never a good time to invest or sell an investment, to move or to stay. Fear of the rain. Fear of tomorrow paralyzes us, and we fail to be good stewards of the time and the treasure which God has entrusted to our care. Rather than always fretting about what we have or we don't have, keeping ourselves up at night with our plenty, we ought to cast bread out on the water, be generous and charitable with all that we have. Yes, all that we have. The teacher says, divide your means seven ways or even eight. And seven is a number that's associated with completeness, like the seven days in Genesis chapter one. So dividing your means seven ways is splitting it all up. And then we're even to consider perhaps eight, perhaps even more than we have, more than we believe is reasonable. Perhaps even that is something we should be sharing. And eight is an interesting number as we read this text in light of the ministry of Jesus. Because while there were six days of creation and the seventh day a day of rest and Sabbath, 
after the Sabbath day, after the seventh day, there was resurrection. The eighth day is the day of resurrection, and many people who read Ecclesiastes in the early church were quick to point this out. St. Ambrose says it is the eighth day which the prophets announce, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. So dividing our means eight ways was seen as an invitation that we've received to live into the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection of Jesus has implications for us about the faith that we profess, certainly, about the lives that we lead, absolutely, but also about our relationship to money and generosity. Because if Jesus really was raised from the dead, then his kingdom surely is coming when he will say, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. If that kingdom is our hope, then we know our money has no purpose in our deaths. And if we died in Christ, then we are invited to live into that better kingdom today. To believe that God has provided rest to his beloved. That Jesus still cares for us and feeds us even now. And that we are only stewards of the master's resources for which we will one day give an account. Wealth hoarded to its owner's harm is a grievous evil. For the rust on our treasure will cry out against us on that day, and no beloved child of God will be able to offer that better testimony on our behalf of the way even we foolishly threw bread on the water, of sowing without regard for the wind, of reaping with no thought of the clouds. But the good news of God's kingdom is that even bread cast on the water will return after many days. And sowing and reaping done in faithfulness and love is a far better testimony than the cry of rust. Friends of Jesus, people of the resurrection, do not grow tired in doing good. And do not be fearful of sharing all that you have. If you have little or much, share of it freely as the Lord may lead you. Share of it abundantly as sowing seed in a field share of it foolishly as casting bread on the water. Do not worry about the wind or the clouds. Do not worry what disaster may fall upon the earth, for these are things in the hands of God. Rather, be faithful in your service to Christ, diligent stewards of all that he has given to you, such that when our day of resurrection comes, we may be seen as people who lived for that coming kingdom even now, whose treasures have preceded us on that journey, who have shunned that great evil of wealth kept to our harm, and embraced the good promise of abundance and life forevermore. All to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? God of lavish riches and abundant treasure. We see in the life of your Son, Jesus Christ, how generously you have shared all that you have with us. How much you long for us to be inheritors of your kingdom, 
not to hoard up for yourself, but to share abundantly and freely. And we long to be that kind of people, but we live in a place where love of money is rampant. And it's in our minds and it's in our hearts. We live in a place where we can't imagine the kind of generosity that is casting bread on the water where this sort of foolishness seems more impossible than ever before. And yet we trust that even what seems foolish to us, if it is your wisdom, is good for us and good for our world. We pray that you would make us as you are, that we would hold loosely the things that you have entrusted to our care, that we would give freely, not knowing the end of our giving. And that in time, you would welcome us into that kingdom where even the poor know the goodness of milk and wine, of water which satisfies. Give us a longing for that day and help us to participate in its coming, we pray. Amen. For your reflection, I'd love you to think about how your faith in the resurrection of Jesus should change your posture toward money and wealth. And then, a really practical question, what have you hoarded up that Jesus is calling you to cast on the waters of his grace? We'll give you a couple of minutes to begin reflecting and praying, and I hope these are questions you carry with you through the week. (laughs) 